let's pray. Father, we stand before you, a grateful people today, for your faithful love and kindness, for the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitutionary lamb. Father, we recognize that we do not deserve such a salvation or such great riches and this great inheritance in Christ that we have. Father, we're humbled today to just acknowledge that you are our Heavenly Father. We are your church. We want to be a pure church. We want to be a loving church. We want to be a church that shines brightly in a dark world. And so as we take our Bibles and study together, once again, the teaching of our Lord Jesus, would you strengthen us in our walk and in our confidence, in our ability to love a lost world with the love of Christ. Help us to be ready for your return. Challenge us now, I pray, through your scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I heard a story of a somewhat antagonistic farmer who found it irritating that the local newspaper editor let his Christian views show through the publication of the local paper. The, the farmer was at best an agnostic and so one day he decided to write a little letter to the editor and he wrote this he said uh, in defiance of your God I plowed my fields this year on Sunday I disked and fertilized them on Sunday I planted them on Sunday I cultivated them on Sunday and I reaped them on Sunday this October I had the biggest crop I have ever had how do you explain that to which the newspaper editor was able to reply in the next edition of the paper with the simple phrase, God does not always settle his accounts in October. <laughs> I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25 this morning and I want you to get in your mind today that our message is about God settling accounts. Our message today is about the most serious topic of the judgment of God. Indeed, God is a God of love, and He's a God of kindness, and He's a God of mercy and grace. But just as much as He is a God of all of those characteristics that we love to enjoy, He is a holy God, and His holiness demands justice, and out of His justice springs a most righteous judgment. Now, most of us, in recognizing that justice meter that we have inside, you have that justice meter? When you see something that is just not right, your justice meter begins to tick and, and it brings a rise up in you. And what do you want? You want judgment. We are especially sensitive with our justice meter when it involves other people more than ourselves. But this morning, as we finish this incredible Olivet Discourse that we've been studying, we'll begin now next Sunday, a Christmas series um, for three Sundays. I wanted us to conclude this end times teaching from the mouth of our Lord Jesus, known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's interesting to me that our Lord is ending with the theme of judgment If you really stop and realize what our Lord is talking about in the passage, it absolutely is emotionally overwhelming. 
The wrath and judgment of God is a most serious subject. This passage that our Lord is teaching, again, is in somewhat of a a story form. Bible students debate whether this is actually a parable or not. But it is certainly parabolic in nature. The way our Lord tells it, He's illustrating with imagery and story. Once again, it's a little bit of an odd story. Have you ever noticed our Lord, though He's a master storyteller, He often tells stories that are just a little bit strange to us. And this story, after we read our text, you'll see what I mean. It's, it's understandable and it's quite straightforward, but yet there's some detail that is very important for us to capture or we'll not understand exactly what's happening. One of those details that we need to capture is the context of this teaching. That is, that it is the conclusion of a talk that our Lord is giving specifically to Peter, James, John, and Andrew who, while they have asked these questions of what it will be like at your return, what is it going to be like at the end times? And our Lord has been telling them. And we've talked about some of these uh, most spectacular events, the, the abomination of desolation and, and the, the taking over of the world by the Antichrist, and, and then the response of God at the end of this time of tribulation, a, a seven-year period where our Lord is specifically focusing on Israel, particularly focusing on Israel and, and the Jewish people. You need to understand that this is what our Lord is talking about. It's at the end of this tribulation period. It's, it's at the end of the, the time when the Antichrist, with the abomination of desolation, has been decimating the Jewish population. He's been killing anybody who refuses the mark of the beast, the 666, anybody who accepts Christ. And there will be many who will accept Christ during this time worldwide among Jews and Gentiles. But particularly, there will be revival among the Jewish nations. There will be specifically, the book of Revelation tells us, 144,000 evangelists that come out of the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know how to take that other than they are really people who will be preaching the gospel and people will be saved. Many of those people, because they're saved, will refuse the mark of the beast and they will be killed by the Antichrist. The false prophet will be manipulating and, and moving among people and among society Uh, controlling the world into one world religion that is headed up by Lucifer, this artificial head of the evil triunity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And all of that is going to come to an end when our Lord returns in His second coming. He's going to come in the sky, and the book of Revelation tells us that he's going to be on a great white horse. There's going to be a sword that's going to come out of his mouth. He's going to come just in time to rescue Israel and Jerusalem specifically, his people there, as the nations of the world have sent their armies to assemble on Jerusalem to destroy it off the face of the earth. And our Lord will come on a great horse as a great warrior king, And the blood will flow and he will destroy them. And then, verse 31 of Matthew 25. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all of his glory is going to be represented in his might and his power and his authority. And when the Son of Man, speaking of himself in that most familiar term that he used, emphasizing his deity rather than his kingship, When the Son of Man, Matthew 25, 31, comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 
What's captured in that is the reality that King Jesus has now taken over the world. It's this world. It's going to be beat up and bruised a little bit from the bold judgments of Revelation. We've already looked there about how God throws out his judgment, as it were, poison out of a bowl or acid out of a bowl. And it spills over the face of the earth and fresh water and salt water will turn to congealed blood and hundred pound hailstones will fall and diseases will take over and there will be unexplainable pain and suffering as wasp-like beasts come up out of the abyss and scorpion-like creatures spray torment on people. It's hard for us to imagine and to even understand exactly what's happening. And, and right at that time, at the second coming, our Lord will come and He will establish His kingship. And I believe in direct fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy explained in the book of Revelation further... That our Lord then will establish His throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. His feet will hit this Mount of Olives. It will split. Jerusalem will evidently be reconfigured geographically at some level. And there He will have the right to rule and reign on the throne of His father David, His earthly father David, appointed by God to be the king of the earth, prophesied by Daniel and others most specifically. And there, the Son of Man, the one born of Mary, will assert himself as King Jesus. One of the first things he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to put on his judge robe as king, and he's going to be a king judge. We've already read a little bit about this concept here. I know I've interrupted our reading all the angels with him, and then he will sit on his glorious throne. Will you just flip back? Because already our Lord has touched upon this subject in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 29. Just let your eyes fall there. Because notice the timing here. Immediately after the tribulation. See that? It's, It's immediately after the tribulation, at his second coming, which will, in essence, cut the tribulation days off according to his plan to preserve the elect and to preserve human life. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign, look at here, the sign of the Son of Man, it's Jesus himself, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What did it just say? What did we just read? And then he will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 31 then of 24. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And they will gather around his throne. The elect gathered there by the angels from around the earth are those who have accepted Christ as their Savior through this tribulation period. And have not died or been killed. There will be many martyrs 
during the tribulation period. But there will be people living who are Christ believers, Christ followers, at the end of the tribulation, when Christ returns in all of his glory, they, he will gather them together. And my understanding of scripture is then that they will then live on with him into his millennial kingdom because following the seven years will be the thousand year millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ in fulfillment of prophecy. That he will sit on the throne and he will rule. And that will be on this earth. We don't know whether this building will still be here or when this will happen. One of the questions that comes up in Bible prophecy a lot is, where is North America in the Bible? The United States. You would think we would be referenced. I think we are. I think we're referenced in the third of the earth that gets burned up. But I can't prove that. That's not very comforting, is it? <laughs> it just doesn't say. And so we don't know for sure, but... What a, what a wicked, sinful nation we're becoming. And it's grievous. And our justice meter activates. And we're looking for judgment, aren't we? And so there we are at the end of the tribulation period. Christ is going to return with all of his angels and all of his glory and all of his might. And it's a good time of year for us to contrast this second coming with the first coming of this infant in a manger being held in a young girl's arms, absolutely, as it were, helpless. That's not how he's coming at his second coming. He's coming with a sword out of his mouth. Paul says in Philippians 2, and, and every knee will bow. Some voluntarily, and some not so voluntarily, but let me assure you, every knee will bow when this King Judge Jesus comes and establishes this glorious kingdom and, and rules and reigns with perfect justice for a thousand years. In fact, they will not not be able to bow the knee. You see, they will fall on their face before this King. But for many, it will be too late. Let's read on in our text. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all of the angels with Him, verse 31 again, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Verse 32, and this is going to get odd. Remember I told you, Jesus gets a little odd. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. On the left. And then, then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger and you welcomed me, and I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me, and I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. And I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's something, isn't it? I mean, you got a picture of that in your mind? This glorious throne established in Jerusalem. And then somehow, and we don't know the details, somehow the nations, I take that to be the people of the earth, will be gathered here around this throne. So let's take a look at what's happening here. Verse 31, as we work with our notes, the first thing we see is the king conquering. I've already kind of expressed that in this, putting it in context of coming in His second coming in all of His glory and all of His power where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's the King conquering this wicked world. He will toss the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself into a bottomless pit for 1,000 years while He rules and reigns for 1,000 years to complete and fulfill the prophetic statements of Scripture. And then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's the picture of a king conquering. And let's just remind ourselves, this son of man is also the king judge. Throughout the passage, he refers a couple times in second person. The king will do this. The king will do this. It's the only time the Lord, and he's obviously referring to himself. It's the only time that I know of in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus actually calls himself the king. And I put slash judge in the notes because you'll notice that as he assembles the peoples of the world, the nations of the world gathered before him, he is going to act as a judge. He's the king who is casting judgment. I want you to take just a minute and turn with you to John's gospel in chapter 5. And I want to remind you of an important concept about judgment. In John chapter 5, and beginning with verse 22... Notice what he says. John chapter 5, verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment, what does it say? To the Son. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them and sent him. So, sent him. If anybody's name is being trashed in our world today, it's Jesus Christ. And if you don't honor Jesus, you don't honor the Father. If you don't honor the Father, you don't honor Jesus. And God in His sovereign oversight of the world has ordained that Jesus Himself, as the second member of the Godhead, as the Son of Man, the one who became incarnate at Bethlehem, to go to the cross to be our sin bearer, He is the one then that will be the sword bearer of judgment. So what we have here on the throne is Jesus himself. And when he refers to the king, he's talking about himself. And when he casts judgment, he's talking about a judgment that he will carry out himself on the people of the world. So the tribulation has ended. Our Lord has come back at his second coming. He has assembled the nations of the world. That's the second thing we sing, the nations gathering, the nations gathering. So we have the king conquering on his glorious throne, and then we have the nations gathering. Letter A under Roman numeral 2, the nations, likely a reference to all people living at the time of Christ's return. Some Bible students call this the 
the judgment of the Gentiles because they think it's only Gentiles that will be assembled there. I don't know that that's true. There's no reason why it wouldn't include Jewish people as well. And it appears to be just all of what it says. The nations of the world. The people, the word there in Greek is ethnos, ethnic groups. The nations of the world will gather there and somehow our Lord will be able to see and speak and oversee all of that as a judge. It's quite a scene, beyond imagination really. But notice that the judge then, the king, acts as a judge and he immediately, sitting from his glorious throne with the nations gathered, he begins to separate the people. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. It's probably something most of us don't know too much about. A few of us here do. That somehow the goats and the sheep got together and the shepherd doesn't like them being together. I don't know if the goats pick on the sheep or what. Maybe they've been out in the field all day long um, and he's gathering them and he wants the goats to go over here and he wants the sheep to come over here. Goats can kind of fend for themselves in a way that sheep might not be able to. Regardless of the agri-driven reason for separating the sheep from the goats, that's what he's doing. He's a shepherd and he wants his sheep and his goats separated. And you'll notice then that the entire nations of the world are categorized into one of two categories. Sheep or goats. Now, I probably don't recommend men that you go around pointing out, I think you're a goat. <laughs> and I think you're a sheep. It's not our call. But couldn't you really, even today, separate all of the nations of the world and all of the people of the world into one of two categories? Sheep or goats? Because notice who the sheep are. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the sheep, clearly letter B, Roman numeral 2, are those who believe in Christ. The sheep are those who believe in Christ. And letter C, the goats are those who have rejected Christ. Those who have rejected Christ. Notice the judge is dividing, verses 33 and 34, I've just read them. The judge is dividing from his left to his right. The right, letter A, the right is a place of honor. That's what he says. And so the sheep on his right, traditionally in scripture and even in extra biblical literature, when the king places somebody on his right hand, that's a place of honor. It's a place of privilege. It's a place of elevation and protection. If you're on his left, and not so much. You don't want to be appointed to the king's left. I'm tempted to get off in a little political analogy right now, but I'm not going to. So then the king will say, verse 34, to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed. And notice that it's been prepared since before the foundations of the world this is not a spontaneous thing. This is about the elect that he said the angels had gathered. This is about those who are saved, those who are blood-bought. They are clearly believers in Christ. The sheep are the believers. The sheep are those who are followers of Christ here at the end of the tribulation period. And the goats are those who reject Christ. 
Those on the right, a place of honor. Those on the left, a place of disfavor. A place of disfavor. We then see in verse 35 a most interesting explanation. The king is explaining now his reasoning for dividing left and right, sheep and goats. Righteous and unrighteous. The king explaining. Let's read it again. So he just says, Come, you who are blessed, these are the sheep on his right, into this kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And immediately, without any segue, he just goes into this explanation. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger and you welcomed me, and I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous say to him, see they are righteous, the righteous say to him, when did we do this? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. It's interesting in this passage as well, the king, when he answers them, when he did it to the least of these, verse 40, these my brothers... Hold that thought in mind in a minute when we read the John Walford quote. These my brothers, you did it to me. It's an identification of those who are identified with Christ. But don't we have to stop and ask ourselves, letter A under Roman numeral 4, is this not a picture of a work salvation? And I want to say, no, it is not. This is not, let's make sure we declare that, this is not... A work salvation being described here, that, that does not jibe or fit in with the rest of the teaching of Scripture at all. You cannot construe a work salvation out of the redemptive plan of God through Christ and His substitutionary death on the cross, whereby we are granted His righteousness by no favor or merit of our own, and whereby we, He takes on Himself our sin. It is a free gift that salvation is always. So what is he talking about here? You see what I mean about Jesus? I mean, you see the disciples are listening. And by the way, I don't know if I said this earlier or not, but so far in chapter 25, what has the theme been? Be ready. You don't know when it's going to happen. Make sure you got oil in your lamps. Remember the ten virgins? Five had oil, five did not. You blew it. You wasted your opportunity. And now you no longer have a chance. And then the... Then the talents, and the master went on a long journey. And then one day, at a time when you don't know, the master comes back to call us account. Be ready, be ready, prepare, anticipate, prepare. Anticipation and preparation has been the theme of chapter 25, and now we know why. Because when he comes back, bam, it's judgment time, and it's too late for anything else. That's why. So it makes sense that he ends this sermon with judgment. It's all over. Bam, it's over. You no longer have time to go shop for oil in your lamp. That time is over. You no longer have time to produce. It's over. And here we are. So as they're divided into two groups, how's this good works to the least of these, my brothers, how is that supposed to compute in our thinking as evidence for being sheep, for being righteous. Well, I would say simply that when you step back from Scripture and you want to look at what, what does a believer in Christ really look like, that regularly in Scripture, good works are given as evidence of salvation. Good works are often evidence of salvation in Scripture. In fact, let's take a look and look at kind of the classic account of this in James chapter 2. 
There are a number of scriptures we could turn to. Our Lord Jesus in Matthew, where we've been for so long, um, taught us earlier that a tree is known by its fruit, right? That there's going to be some external evidence of an internal transformation. And that's our good works. We don't do good works to get to heaven. We do good works because of the transformation that has taken place of, in us and we're on our way to heaven. And so in the book of James, um, I know it's in the back of my Bible here somewhere. Hebrews, James, there it is, chapter 2. A very interesting passage in and of itself here. Now notice what James, in arguing about how do you prove your salvation. So you might even think like this. Just look up here for a minute. Think of this as two guys. James is writing an account as though he's listening in on two guys talking. And the one guy says, are you saved? And the other guy says, absolutely I'm saved. And the guy says back to him, how do you know you're saved? And he says, because I said so. And the guy says back to him, are you saved? And he says, yeah, I'm saved. Well, how do you know you're saved? He said, well, look at my life. It has totally been transformed through Christ. Every day I'm, I'm just amazed that, that this is me. I'm living out a different life than I ever lived before because of the transforming power of Christ in me. I don't do the things I used to do. I, I, I've been changed. And the other guy says, oh, that's not necessary. I know I'm saved. I said I'm saved. I'm saved. If I say I'm saved, I'm saved. You can believe every word I say. So one guy's just talking the talk. The other guy's walking the walk is what's happening here. So let's look at it. Verse 14 of James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now, don't be confused by this passage. We are always and only saved by faith in the finished work of Christ at the cross. No works. The point of the passage is that though we are saved by faith, the evidence of faith is always displayed in works. Okay? Works is never the source of salvation. Faith is the source of salvation. In what Jesus did for me that I could not do for myself, that ends up evidencing itself in my life by the new creation in Christ that I am now, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So back to the text. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If it's a kind of faith that doesn't result in transformed life, then it's not real faith, is his point. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, oh, and I wonder where James got the idea for this illustration. Isn't that exactly the illustration that our Lord just used at the judgment of the sheep and the goats? What he's talking about. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Hey, man, go in peace, love dove. Be warmed and filled. But without giving them the things needed, it really doesn't say all that. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Do you see the illustration? I mean, some guy's really hungry. And he's a man, I'm so hungry. And you're like eating your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you say, man, I'm really sorry you're hungry. Be filled, man, be filled. Keep eating your peanut butter sandwich. So what good did you do? You can say be filled all you want until you give him your peanut butter sandwich to eat some, he's not going to be filled. So what good was it? It was no good. 
Guys standing there freezing? I'm so cold, man. I am so cold. Hey, be warmed. Be warm. Know that my heart is warm for you. Oh, be warmed. And you walk away in your parka. You see how utterly ridiculous it is? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Do not tell me that you're born again if your faith doesn't produce transformation of life. Do not tell me that you are a follower of Christ if all you do is talk, but you don't live it. So back to Matthew 25, I think that's essentially what our Lord is doing here. He's just going to a very practical aspect of the reality of salvation is that the evidence of our salvation, notice the quote in the notes that I wrote, the evidence of one's salvation is made clear in a daily ongoing pattern of righteous living more than just having said a prayer in the past. Now make sure you understand that I am not belittling a prayer in the past. I have a precious memory of age five going with my father and kneeling next to his bed and praying and asking God to save me from hell, of reaffirming that salvation with my mother at her sewing machine at age nine when overwhelmed by fear of Vietnam and the death toll going on there and watching it on black and white television scared me and I wanted to make sure I was going to heaven. I think those prayers were precious moments with my mom and dad. But as the Apostle Paul says, as we examine ourselves and we test our own salvation, you're better off not to go back to a point of prayer. You're better to look at the evidence of everyday living of seeing Christ in you today. Is God at work in you today? Is the fruit bear is the tree bearing good fruit? And is the freshwater fountain bringing out fresh water? Is the fresh water better not bring out salt water. The two don't fit together. You see, what is the evidence of what's seen in your life on a day-to-day -day basis? And I think that's what, God, what Jesus, the judge here, is talking about. Now, I, I told you to remember that point on verse 40 where Jesus, the king, says, look at verse 40, Matthew 25, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There is a reference there, or an inference, let me say, that some Bible students believe that more specifically, this idea of providing food and water and clothing and medicine and visitation in prison, assistance in prison, has to do more specifically with our Lord's brethren, the Jewish people, at this time of the tribulation, in these waning days of tribulation, the Jewish people will take a huge hit. Most of the martyrs of the tribulation will be Jews. And so John Walford points out, and let's just read his quote in your notes, that those described here are people who have lived through the Great Tribulation, a time of unparalleled anti-Semitism, when the majority of Jews in the land will be killed. Under these circumstances, if a Gentile befriends a Jew to the extent of feeding, not add, but and clothing and visiting him, it could only mean that he is a believer in Jesus Christ and recognizes the Jews as the chosen people. You see what his argument is. His argument is, is that if in the text our Lord is speaking more specifically about the Jews more directly, 
And the people of the nations of the world who have sheltered and fed and ministered to the Jews as they have been oppressed by the Antichrist, the only reason they would do that is because they recognize that they are under the lordship of Jesus Christ as well. Otherwise, see, they're getting their throat cut. No one is going to help a Jew at this time on the timeline of the tribulation without paying dearly for it. Having their own children hauled away, having their own family killed having their own property destroyed. And so it's possible that what our Lord is referencing is the people who have proven that they are Christ followers by helping Christ's people during the tribulation period. I don't know. It doesn't say exactly. I think either argument carries some weight, but I think the idea that good works are often the evidence of salvation is also very easily understood there. Well, what do we see then in verses 41 to 45? He switches his attention to the goats. Then he will say on, to those on his left, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, I'll tell you something. It is possible that somebody in this room will hear those words. And I want to warn you today. That has to be an incredibly horrible reality in your life if you are ever in the presence of the King, Jesus. And he says, depart from me. I don't know you. We talked about this last week too. If you're playing around with God and you're fooling around with the Bible and you're fooling around with Jesus, you better wake up because you have limited time to get your lamp ready. You have limited time to produce with the talents you've been given by the master, namely the gospel. Just imagine being in front of this awesome king and he says, depart from me, I don't know. It's an incredible moment. Notice that he condemns them to hell. I do not believe that where he's casting them here now, this is the nations of the world divided into the goats on his left, those who have rejected Christ during the tribulation period. They're going to where people would go who die right now, to a place of torment. The only time you'll get out of that is in Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment, when all those who are in a place of torment that we call hell or Hades right now, will be brought up before this awesome great throne. We know the one who sits on the throne is Jesus himself. It says the sky and everything will flee from him even. It's like in a big vacuum. And all people who are in hell will be brought up to be shown at the great white throne judgment, a judgment, final judgment for unbelievers that their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. You can read about this in Revelation 20. It's easy to read. I mean, it's, it's grievous to read, but it's not difficult to understand what the passage is saying. And the books will be opened, proving to them that they do not know Christ, that their lives are not about God's agenda, but have been about their own agenda, and that their sinfulness condemns them to a Christless eternity. So they're being cast into hell, and the, as far as I can tell, then these people will be part of the great white throne judgment. So we have the judge condemning. Notice what he says in verse 41, and let's click this off. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. First of all, I want you to see that hell is a place of separation. It's a place of separation. They're the ones who will hear, 
I don't know you. Depart from me. Notice, secondly, that it's a place of condemnation. You cursed. You are cursed. You are condemned. Thirdly, notice that it's a place of excruciation into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Ultimately, that happens at the great white throne judgment because hell itself is thrown into that fire. And notice, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. It is a place of association. Yeah, you know, who, who are you identifying with? Yeah, I'm with the Satan and his angels, man. How's that working for you? Yeah, not well. When you add that up and you really think about it, it's absolutely overwhelming. Notice then, we, he uses the reverse argument with the goats that he used on the sheep. You gave me no food. You gave me no clothing. You never visited me when I was sick. You never came to the prison. I needed you. You didn't help me. When didn't we help you? When, Lord, when did we not help you? When you did not do it to the least of these people in need, or at least the Jewish people under oppression of the Antichrist. Roman numeral 6, we have the lost departing, verse 46a. And these will go away into eternal punishment. This is evidently, looking at your notes, this is evidently an immediate, an immediate and thorough removal from the face of the earth to hell until the great white throne judgment. That's how I understand it. So the lost immediately depart and then the saved are entering. Notice what it says. But the righteous into eternal life. The saved are any Those who identified as sheep will be ushered into the millennial kingdom to begin the first phase of their eternal life with Christ. That's an interesting thing, and I don't mean to say that it doesn't raise some questions. See, they won't have a heavenly body yet. They will have been alive in a physical body on this physical earth at the end of the tribulation when the Lord returns, sets up His throne in Jerusalem, gathers the nations of the world, divides them into sheep and goats, casts all the goats into hell forever, has all of the sheep that he ushers into his kingdom. And I take that to be his millennial kingdom immediately. And then they will live. Evidently the curse will not be completely lifted at that point. And if they die, if, there will be, if they die, then they will receive their heavenly body. If they're still living at the end of the millennium, that thousand year period, evidently there will be some kind of instantaneous transformation into a heavenly body. Tom Jesterin will be in the foyer after this service to clear this up with you, okay? And he'll be happy to talk to you and show you from Scripture exactly how it's going to work. What do you take home from this? I mean, just think about what we've just talked about. And we're sitting here, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And are the Redskins playing today? I don't know. Mountaineers didn't play yesterday, did they? No. Stinking Ohio State won. Oh yeah, and he's going to throw them into eternal hell. I mean, just think about what we've just talked about. It's absolutely overwhelming. This assembly of people divided into two parts. Well, one thing I like about this, and I, when I read this, and he wraps up the Olivet Discourse here, number one, what I get out of this is that God wins. God wins, and Jesus rules. That's all number one. You see, my justice meter ticks off a lot 
The illustration I often use because it's so simple is when people throw trash in my front yard down here on Daniel Road. Oh, man, it just fires me up. Why did you throw trash in my yard? And I get my deer rifle and I'll take you out. Your lovely your pastor loves people enough to shoot them for putting trash in his yard. It's terrible. But it's wrong. It's so wrong that they put trash in my yard. They need to pay. They will. I will report to you on this ongoing issue that I'm dealing with in my emotionally challenged world that maybe about one out of three times now when I pick up trash, I have a heart broken for these people and I pray for them. Only one out of three times. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And think about, think about how dumb it is to throw trash in a guy's yard. Even when I'm right there on my lawnmower. You know, what, didn't your mama teach you anything? No, man, I didn't have a mama. I, didn't your dad ever spank you in your bed? No, man, I don't even know who my dad is. You see, so they're sinners and so they sin and, and they got issues because they're in a sinful world. And for the pastor of the Bible church to shoot him with his deer rifle... That is absolutely not the right answer. Absolutely not. Shame on me. And i got to understand, I'm not on a losing side, God wins. And number two, be ready. Don't you get be ready out of this passage? Because when He comes, the judgment takes place. And the whole point of chapter 25 is to prepare and be ready and anticipate And then when it happens, it's over. And by the way, the direct application to us is death. If you die today, it's over. You are just like the people at the Lord's return. Though they didn't die, Christ returns. It's over. There's no more chance to prepare. The judgment takes place. So though God wins, wins, you better be ready. Because you don't know how many more breaths you have in your chest. Thirdly, serve Christ. Serve Christ. I mean, how can we read this passage and not get out of it that giving a cup of cold water to a needy person really matters? And you know, it's, I've, I've had to learn that it's not my job to figure out all of the opportunities that that person blew as why they're here today without a drink of water and how many times they disobeyed their parents and disobeyed their teachers and disobeyed their police and here they are. They're just sinners. They're goats, man. And goats are goats. Goats aren't sheep. You got to give them a glass of water. I also want to serve the body of Christ effectively in need. That's what 1 John is about. But we gotta, we got to close There's this incredible judgment and know that Jesus is the king and he's the judge and God wins. The world is not getting away with it. You don't have to throw stuff at your television when you're watching the news. Just shut it off. God will win. Be ready. Serve Christ. Let's stand in closing prayer. And so, Father, help us do this. Help us to maintain our integrity in this world as followers of Christ. Father, forgive me for the ways that I think horrible thoughts about sinful people when all they're doing is just sinning. 
as part of their nature. Rather than weeping over them, I'm angry with them. Would you break our hearts, Lord, for those in need, for those who need visited in prison, for those who need clothed? Would you help us to do all of this in the name of Jesus? Would you help us to have the natural outflow of the gospel in our lives in practical ways? Thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for that glorious throne upon which he will sit, the perfect justice with which he will rule in this world. Thank you for our position in the church, likely coming back to rule with him in some form of assistance. Hard for us to imagine all of this. Continue to teach us and grow us. And this Christmas season now, as we begin a whole new view of the next three weeks, Help us to understand at, a, understand at a whole new, deeper level who Jesus is and why he did what he did. It's in his name that we pray and in his name that we depart. Amen.